everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Elena. I'm Zach. Rabia Chaudhry is a wife, mother, attorney, author, researcher, and producer who is most famous for representing Adnan Syed, the subject of the popular podcast Serial, Season 1. She has since launched two of her own podcasts, Undisclosed, which profiles other potentially wrongful convictions, and The 45th, which explores with depth important stories from the Trump administration. In addition to her media work, she has also done research on religion and violent extremism for the U.S. Institute of Peace and worked for the New America Foundation in developing a program to counter violent extremism and empower American Muslim communities on social media. Thank you so much for joining us, Rabia. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I would say that, you know, the moment I really had to make a pivot about what I was going to do really was in the aftermath of Serial. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, at the time I was working in national security policy. Uh, I had practiced law for quite a while, but uh, I wanted to work in some policy. But what I realized when Serial happened was, you know, this is a case I had been at that time working on for 15, 16 years that I either had to like make the decision to see that momentum through to help Adnan, you know, get another chance in court um, or just focus on my work. And I decided to put my work on the back burner because I couldn't afford, we couldn't afford uh, for us to lose that momentum. And so we launched Undisclosed and that has now turned into almost a full-time thing where now the focus of my work is really working on wrongful convictions. Mm -hmm. So that was a a big pivot moment for me. Yeah. So, you know, we were reading about your bio and Seeing that you started off your career in law, why did you, you know, what first sparked your interest in being a lawyer and deciding to follow that? Well, I am um, a failed medical student, basically. <laughs> like many other South Asian students of my generation, I, I was pre-med. Um, and in my fourth year, I was like, this is not going to happen. This is not going to work. It's not right for me. And I just sat for the LSAT just kind of on a whim, and I did extraordinarily well. And I thought, okay, this is probably what I'm meant to do. Um, so, and when I was going to law school, this was in the nineties, um, there weren't a lot of American Muslims in law school at the time. Most people picked engineering or medicine. Um, so I didn't know a lot of others from my community who were doing it. Um, now while I was in law school, actually right as I graduated around that time, uh, 9-11 happened and suddenly the community realized we need more lawyers. Um, so it happened at a, I graduated from law school around the time that there was a real need for a lot of civil rights lawyers and other kinds of, uh, attorneys in our in our community, so uh, it was it was upper, it was a, a good time to have graduated from law school. Um, so on your website, uh, one thing you talk about working in on is the Safe Nation Collaborative, and can you talk a little bit more about why you think it's important to start dialogues with uh, Muslim communities and the security community, and what do you think makes for good dialogue? Right. So let me tell you a little bit about what the Safe Nation Collaborative was when it existed. It, um, I, I ran it for about four years and then we had actually had to fold really because of serial. Um, but, uh, you know, I had worked I was working as an attorney doing immigration and civil rights work. And what was happening again, this is in the wake of 9-11 was across the country, uh, Muslims just going to the mosque, just living their lives. American Muslims were being kind of cornered by federal law enforcement and saying, look, we're either going to have you deported or we would like you to, like, basically, sur- you know, do surveillance inside of your mosque, gather intelligence for us, never in response to a real threat. Mm-hmm. And I really tried to figure out where is this 
strategy and policy coming from. Uh, and what I learned was that there is literally the kind of law enforcement training that was happening across the country and in the Pentagon at very different levels of law enforcement military was very anti-Muslim and Islamophobic. And that there was no organization that was committing themselves to giving training to law enforcement and military that was grounded in facts and reality and in building relationships between these communities. So there was a lot of fear in the American Muslim community. So I founded Safe Nation Collaborative, and the purpose of that was to provide diversity training to law enforcement on local levels um, and also to provide training in Muslim communities on local levels about how does law enforcement operate, when, how do you protect your rights, but at the same time, how are you a productive member of society and, uh, and don't fear law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, it, it was important to do, it's still important to do uh, for marginalized communities, you know, now that I'm working kind of in, in, in criminal justice stuff, you know, I see a whole other angle of it. Um, but, you know, we, we have to do better with our law enforcement communities. Other countries have it much better than we do. Was the focus on um, advocating for the American Muslim community a product solely of 9-11? It seems like there are roots in your background or childhood where that was, you know, a, a very big part of something you believed was important. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a family where my mother specifically was always very conscious of like kind of social justice issues and always calling awareness to that and telling us, you know, this is what's happening in this part of the world, this is what's happening in this part of the world, this is, you know, uh, when the famine in Ethiopia was happening and I was in middle school, like that was a big topic in our, uh, in our family. And so I've always kind of been raised with this eye for like, what is, the, what is your purpose and need in the world? Well, what do people need? For, what can you give to the world, basically? Like, um, that's what, where your value is, and that's, you know, the meaning of your life. So um, when 9-11 happened, I actually was in law school thinking I'm going to do corporate law. <laughs> None of that happened because suddenly the community had a different need. Um, and and uh, a lot of my career has been basically responding to what I think is that current the, the current need of the day. Does that ever take a, I mean, a toll on you in taking so much responsibility for advocating for your community and feeling the need to be their advocate? Are there times in when you're, you know, frustrated with the outcomes or... Most of the time know. I'm frustrated with the community, but okay. yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, definitely. And I've taken a beating many, many times. Look, you can't do any kind of public work without getting heavily criticized. And I get criticized roundly, whether it's from the left, from the right, from the community. I've had boycotts against me from the community for certain thing, positions I've taken uh, relating to dialogue specifically. Um, and you get burned out. All activists and advocates get burned out. It happens. And uh, you have to know how to have some self-care. But I think people who kind of have that drive, you can never kind of stay away from it. Um, it just, it's what gets you up in the morning. And burnout or not burnout, it's what occupies your mind. And it's like, you know, it, it, it you just can't get away from it. So, you know, I would love to Netflix and chill all the time, but it's, uh, I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel very useless when I do that. How did you switch into um, the criminal justice work you're doing now? Because on your website, um, Anand says that the first letter he received in 1999 was from you. Um, and you said you've been working on it for 16 years. So what was it? Were you um, working on that throughout the whole time? And then how did you decide to go into it right. um, fully? So, you know, when I say that I've been working on Anand's case since 99, 2000, it wasn't in a legal capacity. I was in law school when he was arrested. Um, but he was my, and is my younger brother's best friend. So to me, it was like this kid I've known since he was 13, mm -hmm. what happened? And his parents live in my parents' sub suburbs and they all live in the same community. Um, so for me, working on it was like giving his family support, giving him support. The letter I wrote him was not as a lawyer. It was like, I'm your big sister. What do you need? What's going on here? 
uh, it was trying to make sure the documents the family needed got to the lawyers, the, the fundraising was happening. I certainly didn't have the experience to represent him, and I've never represented him legally. I have only been kind of his advocate. Um, then helping the family through the appellate process. Um, like I said, at the time, there weren't a lot of lawyers you know, amongst American Muslims. So I was the closest thing to one, but I was a law student. Um, so working now, when I say pivoting to criminal justice specifically, just happened after serial happened. You know, Adnan's wrong case was the only wrongful conviction I ever worked on. You know, people have been doing this stuff for decades, and I'm not an expert on it. That was the only case I'd ever worked on. Then when other cases started coming to me and my colleagues who were working in Adnan's case, I was like, oh, and none of us ever did wrongful conviction work before. We're like, they are like pattern. You see the same patterns over and over in these wrongful convictions. Um, and so, you know, with Undisclosed, which is my podcast that started off covering Adnan's case after Serial, we were going to be done. That was it. But we got so many requests from other lawyers, from Innocence Projects, from defendants, and their families, um, that we just couldn't say no. And so we've done like 12 or 13 since then. And um, um, yeah, so now that's kind of become like the ma I still have uh, an immigration practice, though, where I'm like a supervising attorney. But this is really the bulk of my career now. So when you decide, you know, you're going to make a, a podcast episode or, you know, have a season on a specific wrongful conviction case, how do you make information accessible to the public? And how do you decide how to, you know, clothe the truth and story? Because mm -hmm. people follow stories and right. then they get the truth from that. Right. So, you know, after Serial, when we made this announcement that we're going to do a follow-up podcast, people were like, Serial Part 2. Now, we were three lawyers who had no idea how to, like, do storytelling. And uh, Undisclosed is a heavily legal podcast. <laughs> and for people who expected Serial Part 2, it was a big disaster and big disappointment. But people who have come to follow us over the years uh, really like kind of how granular we get. So, you know, every episode that we do for Undisclosed specifically, first of all, we are working directly with the defendants and their lawyers, which means we're it's an active investigation. We're not just reporting like journalists. We are working as attorneys on the defense team. Um, there's always going to be information and evidence that we are not going to present in the podcast because it would hurt them legally or that we need to save in case there's a new trial or something. So we are very careful about what information we divulge. We've gotten better at telling the story. Um, than we used to be. But, uh, you know, what we try to do is with every episode, every episode that's scripted, maybe about 30, 40 pages worth, it takes maybe five, four or 500 hours of work before that episode's scripted because we, we've been working on the case for a couple of years before it gets to air. Um, but we'll provide all the documents to back up whatever that episode is about, right? Any kind of case documents are on our website. Um, we are very active on social media and we tell our listeners, look, tweet to the governor about this case, right? Like, this is where you can write to the defendant. We try to pull people into the into the process so they feel like they're empowered in changing the system. Um, the trailer of the HBO series, The Case Against Anand Sayed, which follows up on Serial, um, you say, um, when you're working on a case that you think is a wrongful conviction, you're only on one side, and that side is getting to the truth. Um, but in trials, it's, it's very different. There's someone on one side and someone on the other side, right. and the truth isn't really... It, it is a concern insofar as they are advocating for their side. Um, do you think that this is that the the combative legal system that America has is a good one? And do you think um, that truth is the object or the product, and and should it be as well? You know, I will say that if everything operates as it should, it's a it's a pretty good legal system in terms of what mankind can produce. <laughs> you know, compared to like other countries in the world. 
Um, is it ever going to be perfect? No, because people are biased. People are flawed. People can be incompetent. People can be corrupt. And all of that stuff feeds into the courtroom. Um, and what happens in a courtroom is the person who tells the best story wins, not the person who tells the truth. This is the bottom line. But again, if you have everybody working competently and ethically, then it, sh it wouldn't, won't even matter who tells the best story. It doesn't matter if one person is a better litigator, more charismatic in front of the jury. Um, if, for example, that a prosecutor is really good in front of a jury, but he really has disclosed all of the evidentiary investigative stuff to the defense and given that guy a fair shot, it shouldn't matter if that defense counsel is competent and can handle it. Um, so if everything works properly, fine. But if even one piece of that chain is broken, let's say one dirty cop, one unethical prosecutor, one drunk <laughs> defense attorney, um, that defendant could be doomed. So, you know, yeah, we have a confrontational legal system. It's not perfect. There are improvements that can be made. Um, but it's not bad if, it, if everybody does their job uh, ethically. What is it like to watch the process when it's not working? Um, certainly with wrongful convictions, but also with um, Anon. One key component was that his lawyer um, didn't initially, or well, the first lawyer he had didn't provide um, adequate counsel, and right. then there were some evidence that wasn't included or, or an mm -hmm. alibi that was not chased up. What was it like um, when you were his friend? Now that you're his, when you were his advocate, um, and now looking back on it, what were the emotions you felt? What were Maybe tell us some stories from the time as well. Yeah, I attended um, the, there was, the first trial happened in like, I think, uh, December of 99. And I was taking finals in law school and I couldn't attend it. It was a very short trial, ended in a mistrial. He was tried again just a couple months later and I did attend that trial. And I remember sitting there thinking, and I was, a, I think, a second year law student at the time thinking, what is happening here? Even as a law student, I could tell that something is really wrong with this lawyer. She was rambling incoherent she would have these emotive like explosions and i'm like you the jury's gonna hate you forget the defendant like you're hurting him and i would be there and you know the thing is it's not like the kids he went to school could be there because they're all in college or something or they're at work you know it's during the work week how many people can go to court during mm -hmm. a work week people can't so it was me because i had a break from law school at the time and it was like all the old folks from our community who had no idea what was going on because of language issues um, and it was horrifying to me. And I knew immediately he's screwed. I could see it. And I didn't know what to do. And a couple of times I went to the attorney's office with his parents and she was terrible to them. She was terrible to them. Um, and she would say, you're here to write me a check. You're not my client. I don't have to answer your questions. He was a juvenile, right? Like he did need his parents to advocate for him and, and, and get answers for him. He didn't know. None of us had experience with any of this. So it was, um, it was pretty traumatic and it put and I, at the time I was considering working I had been offered a, an internship at the public defender's office but after experiencing that travesty up close I was like I can't do criminal defense work I can't do criminal justice work because it's so traumatic and people don't get a fair shake so it had a lasting impact on me so moving I mean moving from that where you seemed like you had that traumatic experience what do you think has changed in you where now it is something that you can confront and you've become an advocate, not just for Adnan, but other people who've been wrongfully um, convicted. I think it took the fact that, in, you know, when Cyril happened, I also was still an inexperienced, an inexperienced criminal justice advocate. I didn't, I was just thinking about Adnan. I didn't understand the system. I didn't understand all these other things that impact, because I never did criminal defense. I never worked in the prosecutor's office. Um, I had to learn a lot from other people who came to our rescue, and I'm thankful for them. And they're the ones who showed me 
you can actually make a difference. You know what I mean? Like if you, this is, there's a way to reinvestigate a case. There's a way to like attack evidence. There's a way to figure out what really happened with the police work and get, get the records. And I realized that, you know what, that it's, it's not hopeless. And when I realized it's not hopeless, I thought, okay, you can replicate this for other cases too. Because when people are that incompetent that they put away the wrong person in prison, that means they've left a lot of, a lot of T's uncrossed and a lot of I's not dotted. The paper trail is usually there, right? You just need the right people uh, to be dogged about it and be willing to spend sometimes 8, 10, 12 years on a case to un unravel it. Um, so what gives me hope now is that I know a difference can be made. I have seen there's been an in increase in exonerations in the last few years. Um, hundreds of exonerations are happening every year. It did not happen many years ago. Um, and also the fact that it's very hard for me to turn down, turn away families that are asking for help. I, I, I know what that desperation feels, feels like. Um, important work to be sure. Um, also very heavy, maybe to move on to something lighter, but heavy on the belly. In your website, you say that you can cook a five-course meal in under 90 minutes. Can you really do that? Absolutely. And, and who eats five-course meals at home? Um, my friends do when they come over. <laughs> I would, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've been cooking for a long time. I've been cooking for like 25 years. I'm pretty fast at it because I have. when you're a mom and a working mom and you have family to raise, um, you multitask like a fiend. So uh, if somebody wants to come and witness it, it can hey. be done. <laughs> I'll take that as We're an both right. Come up to DC and we'll What's do it. What's your favorite, like, number one go-to course to make? Oh, gosh. Um, I have a – well, the the dish that I'm known most well for is my it, – it's actually the chicken chicken palau, which is like a chicken pilaf. It's like a Pakistani dish uh, or South Asian dish, which is a chicken and rice dish, which sounds pretty simple. But uh, to get it just right is a little complicated. So, But I can do that in my sleep now. I've done it so many times. Uh, you also say that you're a fearless traveler. So we're some, yes, <laughs> you did. <laughs> I mean, I got to update my website. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe you would love to be I'd a fearless to traveler. So where's the one place you'd love to go that you haven't been? Oh God. Oh, so, you know, if you look at my Twitter handle, I changed it to Rabia Ochaudhry because there's some part of me that feels like I might've been Irish in my past <laughs> life. I want to go to Ireland. I don't know what it is about Ireland. Like I'm really called, like really want to go to Ireland. Um, and I also love to go to, uh, Morocco and like North Africa. Those are the two places I really want to see. Yeah. Maybe you don't identify with it anymore, but what did it mean to be fearless in terms of traveling? I'm not even sure why I put that okay. there, but I think <laughs> probably what I meant was um, I just want to be able to, you know, so I grew up in a very traditional South Asian family where travel wasn't a thing. It was all about education and work and vacations. Who vacations? What's that? Uh, and as I grew up, I realized I'd rather put my money and resources like that's extra into travel and experience and and not and I hate to say this but the truth is like brown people don't like going into places that are like not safe that we're always like is that safe is that okay can we go there um, we're not we're a little bit more we're a little more timid as a community uh, I don't want to be that timid uh, you know I've got a, a friend who's climbed Everest and you know I'm wow. like I'm yeah and I'm uh, inspired by uh, by seeing what people are doing so I want to be that fearless I, I'm still timid though I'm always afraid I'm going to break an ankle but uh, I don't want to be like that the last question we always ask our guests is, what is your definition of success? And what adv advice would you give to students in pursuing that definition or defining success for themselves? Um, success is not a goal to me. Success is a journey. Success is doing your best in the moment. 
I mean, that's how I define. I mean, it used to be that I want to see this, like I want to achieve this, I want to achieve this, I want to achieve this. But what I realized is we are not in control of an outcome. Like we can only do our best. And so to me, success is, did you try everything? Did you do your best? If you didn't do your best in something, you have no business complaining about the outcome. But if you did, then they, you have no regrets, right? And so to me, success is just doing your best in whatever it is you want to do. Work hard. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. But thank you so much, Rabia, for joining us. Thank you. And to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.